Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 134. Today, we are starting spooky season off right, which we're actually calling Crimetober. I'm doing Crimetober on my channel and here on this podcast. That's a great name. I like yeah, that. Crimetober. Like Got to give credit to Janelle. She actually came up with Crimetober. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> so we are going to be looking at the case of Elizabeth Short, otherwise known as the Black Dahlia. This is a super famous case. Super brutal case, too. Yes. Um, well, that's the thing with Crimetober is that we're going to try to do some more right. you know, darker, scarier type cases that are out there. Just, yeah, more gruesome than what we normally would cover yeah, on the show. A little closer to the lights out content. That you yes, put yes. Out. <laughs> we're going into the lights out realm for sure. And I have covered this case on my channel before a long time ago. I did a very short video on it, just a brief overview, but there's a lot more to it. And since then, Josh and I got to go to LA in 2019 for this project that I was working on. And we got to go to the Soudan house and that was really cool. So we actually have taken a tour as well around LA regarding this case and all the details of it and saw several locations from the case. And we just know a little bit of extra information and we thought it'd be interesting to do a podcast now. Yeah, I mean, it's such a like infamous case, especially it's like one of the most notorious cases in all of L.A. history. I feel like Mm -hmm. Uh, it was huge at the time when it happened. So, yeah, yeah, because it was like kind of the first time that something so brutal happened to a woman in the way that it did. And we'll Mm -hmm. obviously go over all that. But yeah, it was it's an absolutely crazy case. And the suspects in this are really, really interesting. So we got a lot to dive into today, but we also got a couple interesting mind bending intro topics for you as well. And before we get into those, I want to thank our sponsors for today. We got upstart postmates, tushy quip and stamps.com. That is so awesome that we got all that support from those guys. So we appreciate it, Mm -hmm. but yes, let's go ahead and get into our first intro topic here. So time travel might be theoretically possible. According to physicists, there's some researchers at the university of Queensland, Australia who claim to basically have proven that time travel is theoretically possible according to the laws of physics. Obviously this is something that has been studied for years and years. I was going to say, don't we kind of already know that? Haven't we been saying that for a while now? Yeah. And I mean, Nikola Tesla theoretically possible. Yeah. Albert Einstein pretty much figured that out. It's not like they're saying we for sure know it's possible. They're saying it could be possible. So, well, and everybody's study, the people that are studying it are trying to look at it from different angles and like, you know, analyzing, especially Albert Einstein's, you know, different, uh, you know, laws and things like that, that he, he came up with. So, uh, or discovered rather to try and figure out like if time travel actually exists, what would that look like in real life? Cause you know, in time travel and like back to the future and movies, Hollywood and, and, you know, just in stories, jump in the DeLorean. Oftentimes you can go back in time and you can actually alter, you know, the future by changing something. Yeah. Right, 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 right. But according to this new study that these researchers did, they came to the conclusion that you can't change the future. That even if you can go back into the past, there's no way to actually change the future. And let me explain more. I think I already understand it. Can I take a guess at what they mean by that? Are they saying that there are different timelines essentially and that when you're time traveling that you're never really going back to your original universe or bubble or timeline that you're from. If you time travel back that you maybe you end up in a different timeline altogether with a, you know? Yeah, you sort of, is that what they're saying? 
Does that make any sense? Not really, but I do understand what you're saying that, you know, that if you, it's not going to be the same timeline as it was before. If you go, even if you go back, is like if you make a change in a specific timeline that it's only going to affect that specific world or timeline and it's not going to change the original one you came from. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in that looking at it that way would make sense. But for this, I think they're talking about the original timeline. Like if you were, if you went back, you know, so let me just, let me just read their example. Okay, Cause okay. this gets very complicated and I'm already starting to trip myself. Cause I'm like, <laughs> sorry. What? So what they're saying is that according to the rules created by the theoretical physics, any changes impacting the past would subsequently cor- be corrected by events that followed. For example, according to what is known as classical dynamics, if a time traveler were to go back in time and say, kill their grandfather, this would result in the time traveler never coming into existence in the first place. So it does change your timeline. You would think it does. Like that's kind of what they're like saying, right? It would like, I feel like what you're saying kind of goes with it, but I feel like scientists aren't going to be like, but you're on a different timeline because you're in a different universe. Cause then, you know, that opens a total different can of worms. Cause I, I think they're looking at this from a very like, blanket point of view, like from a mathematics point of view versus, you know, being completely theoretical in theory, you know, there's multiple timelines, multiple universes in that sense. I don't even get what they're really saying. Isn't this how we've all seen it forever? That if you go back in time and change, I mean, that's how it does happen in the movies. Like you wouldn't exist. Isn't that the whole theme of one of those back to the future movies is he's worried he's not going to exist if his parents don't meet and stuff like you're right. Yeah. I'm, I'm confused. It's yeah. exactly. They're basically saying that it, that is how it is. Well, I'm confused because part of the article says that, but then it also kind of made it sound like they're talking about how it, like it, you wouldn't necessarily yeah. be able to Sorry, go back and change history. Like you, that's not exactly how it works. Like how some people be like, I wish I could go back in time and make this event not happen. Well, yeah. And I didn't even get, I didn't even finish the explanation. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're already jumping ahead. So what they're saying is that within Einstein's theoretical framework, which is what they actually use to conduct this study, a person could go back in time to kill their grandfather yet would still be here today. Oh, the future remains the same. Okay. So damn, this is now as a listener, you're probably completely fucking confused. (laughs) That was the point just to confuse you about time travel. Okay. So they're saying it wouldn't change. How does that work? Explain that if your grandfather died, then you're not going to be alive. How is that possible? Their explanation is basically they came to this conclusion by calculating that an object in our universe could travel through both time and space in a circular direction before ultimately ending up where it had been before a path known as the closed time, like curve is what they're saying, which <laughs> to an average person, I mean, that doesn't make yeah. a lot of sense. Cause it's like, they're just saying that you would come back to the same place. No matter if you went back, it would end up the same way. So there's no changing the future at all. Even if we could go so back, maybe they just don't fully understand it. Well, yeah, we, that's the thing. <laughs> that's is what like, it sounds like. They're not claiming they can make a time travel machine right now. Like, this no, is, no, no. I'm they're just saying just, they're trying to explain how it works, but I don't think they really do. If what I was saying earlier is true, that you never, because that is an idea that giving all credit to John Teeter, the internet hoax, or yeah, was he? Maybe right. he wasn't a hoax. You never know. Maybe not. <laughs> never know. But he was the one who said that on those online forums that, you know, time travel works in this way where, you can go back in time, but you can never get back to the original 
world that you were right. in. You're basically right. creating a new universe every time you're traveling. Right. So you are moving in time, but you can tweak it and only that specific universe is going to have that ripple effect. And that would explain things like deja vu and right. uh, Mandela effect and shit like that. Right. Which makes sense why they're using Einstein's theoretical framework for like this original timeline that we're all on. If we yeah. had the ability, this is what would happen. We would go Kinda back, but sense. we can't change anything. Maybe it's not time traveling as much as we think it is. I mean, the construct of time is so, you know, human as it is. Maybe it's, it is something more where it's more like universe hopping. Yeah, uh, exactly. Dimension hopping. Right. That's what it is. Not time traveling on the same timeline. You're jumping around to a different universe, just entering at a different point in their timeline. Yeah. Cause yeah, I would find it hard to believe that you could, on the same because like i thought time always runs linear like it always runs one way that's how we in this in this reality like it's never going backwards and you couldn't go backwards in this timeline but you could go backwards in another timeline that you would subsequently have to create in order to do that Mm -hmm. which would i feel like would make more Mm -hmm. sense but then again that's a lot more shit they got to prove you know they got to prove the concept of parallel universes and things like that and they haven't quite gotten there yet to where we can actually say hundred percent that there's other universes out there. Right. Which I truly believe. And maybe it's not like you said, maybe it's not other universes. Maybe it's just alternate dimensions. Like Mm -hmm. there could be an infinite number of dimensions for all we know. I know, I think we've come up with like, there's 12 dimensions, but we could go, we know shit. There is a dimensional scale. They have actually, there's, there's 12 different dimensions, but do we actually know that it doesn't go further than that? Yes. We have scientific proof. We do not. (laughs) So, so maybe, yeah, that's cool. I'm glad they're ones. doing, you know, studies on this though. That'd be fun. That'd be a fun uh, job, right? To yeah. study time travel. And you like, got to be smart, man, to understand seriously. that and actually make progress in it other than just theorize like we're doing. But I feel like that's a, like a lot of what theoretical scientists do is they have to theorize and then they go yeah. to try and prove it. Right. right. Yeah, so they got to be open-minded. Scientific to some method, extent. Right. Yeah. You got to yeah. hypothesis and try to prove your hypothesis. True. Very true. So the next story I have is about something that I think we're going to be dealing with a lot more in the future, especially, and that is cyber attacks. You know, a lot of people have said politicians and other world leaders have said that the next big war is going to be a cyber war. It's not going to be something that is fought physically. It's all going to be done digitally uh, over the Internet. Recently, a German woman actually died following a cyber attack on a Dusseldorf University Hospital in Germany. Oh my God. And the cyber attack disabled computer systems. And this was the first patient that many believe is basically died as a result of hackers, mm-hmm. which is very interesting because hackers could really fuck up a lot of shit. That like, is terrifying. How fucking evil do you have to be to mess up a computer system for a hospital? Yeah. So what happened was this patient was supposed to be moved to Dusseldorf University Hospital for critical care on September 11th but instead had to be transferred to a hospital much farther away due to the hack. Cause they're like, we can't accept patients or anything because all of our systems are down. Yeah. And because the transfer was way longer uh, than it should have been, she should have been able to go to this other hospital. She passed away, uh, unfortunately. So this was a lot of people believe this is like the first time that hackers directly resulted in a patient's death, especially. So it's something that I think, is going to be a huge issue in the future. Like what if you, you know, hackers figure out ways to take down whole hospitals, take down the power grid. 
Oh, that's a really scary thought. That will happen. So because this patient died, German officials have now launched a formal inquiry for negligent homicide, actually. And despite the severity of this attack, it is likely the ransomware, which was the type of hacking, essentially. It wasn't like, you know, a hacker hacked into a single computer Mm -hmm. and shut Mm -hmm. it all down. If you don't know what ransomware is, it's basically like a virus that you get on your computer and then it locks down the entire system and holds it ransom. Right. And until you pay the hackers that sent this virus, you know, or program, then you're screwed. You can't use your shit. And a lot of them have a timer on it so that if you don't give them money by a certain time, it just wipes everything. It completely wipes the computers clean. So for a hospital, this is obviously a huge, huge problem. Yeah. And it's not it's not like you can just remove it. You can't just call the IT guy. And the IT guy comes, comes down in, yeah. because it's encrypted and they use these special keys that are unique and there's no way to crack it or break it or wow. remove it. You literally have to have the key in order to re- actually, you know, unlock it. Otherwise, you got to pay the ransom and get the key from them. And they, it's not like they have the budget for that. <laughs> no, because, I mean, they're going to ask for extraordinary, like yeah, crazy huge amounts. amounts of money. And if it comes down to someone's life, though, like, yeah, I don't know, might want to pay it. Well, they didn't. And, you know, look what happened. So apparently they weren't targeting the hospital, though. Apparently they were trying to go for a German university. Actually, Uh, they're trying to get payment from them. And somehow along Mm. the way they screwed that up. Probably, you know, I I don't know how they exactly got the ransomware to the hospital, um, probably via email. Usually it's something that looks you like something it. else and you open it up, you think it's a PDF file and then yeah. boom, it un- unleashes itself on, on your computer. Damn, that is sad. Her family must be so pissed off. How old was she? Do we know? I don't know. No, there wasn't really any information about who mm. she was or anything, wow. but apparently the police did get a hold of the hackers because they obviously had contact information for them through the uh, ransomware and they basically said, you guys got to give us the key because we got to get these hospital servers back up and running and stuff. And they did. So because they were like, oh, shit, we fucked up. Like, yeah, we, we weren't meaning to do that. And yet this happened. So wow. we'll see if, yeah, if any charges are brought against these guys or they if they have even identified them. I don't even know if they've identified who they are. Yeah. They probably just read the police probably just them? reached out to them and said, hey, yeah, give us the this. key at the very please. least. Like yeah. somebody died. God. So yeah, they I mean, should be held accountable if they can find them. But I've, yeah, probably they're not. Unlikely. They're not gonna, probably won't find them. Yeah. Damn, that's sad. Her family, yeah, must be really mad. I would be super pissed off if that happened to one of my loved ones. Right. God. Yeah, really crazy. Also, another thing we want to talk about is the new Kobe Bryant law that will take effect next year. Um, this is something that I'm really surprised wasn't already a law. Apparently, it was always legal for. EMTs to take photos of victims at crime scenes and spread them. And there was no laws preventing this. And um, most people know that when Kobe Bryant died earlier this year, God, I can't even believe that was this year. This year has been so long and tiring. Yeah. But it started off with that. Horrible. It was Horrible. January 26th that this happened. The saddest thing. Oh my God. Kobe Bryant, Gianna, and his daughter, and seven others. Yeah. yeah. Just horrific. I mean, everyone knows what happened. But some asshole EMT took no. pictures of him. Eight. According to the lawsuit, eight. no fewer than eight sheriff's deputies <gasps> at the crash site pulled Stop. out their personal cell phones and snapped photos of the dead children, parents, and coaches. Eight? Eight. Oh, my God. I thought it was one or two. Oh, my eight. God. How, they took how these can photos there be that many corrupt people in our 
system. What the I hell? I don't know why. That is so just scary. Just morally, you would think that's like yeah. okay to How do. How can that many people have thought that was okay? Wow. And it was spread all over. I mean, I never saw it. I'm glad it didn't make it too far, but still just horrific to do this to this poor family who've already been through so much. And this has probably happened to so many other people. Yeah. And Vanessa also claimed that Sheriff Alex Villanueva tried to cover it up by telling the deputies if they delete the photos, they would not face any discipline. Wow. That's unreal. So are they going to face any charges or anything because it wasn't a law at the time? I don't think we know yet whether or not anything is going to happen to them because the lawsuit is still pending. Okay. So there's still, yeah, you can still get sued. Yeah. You can still get sued. I don't, but yeah, I don't know if the sheriff's departments can actually do anything because yeah, they told he was like, delete them. Yeah. And yeah, Vanessa Bryant is suing the sheriff's department. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. She's suing everyone she can. There were so many people taking advantage of the situation. It was just sick to see. Well, I'm glad that's a law now. And hopefully they can really crack down on people who do that in the future. Because I'm sure there'll be someone who does it again. But it's just all the law does is just charge a fine up to $1,000. Oh, my God. And then you can go sell those pictures for way more than that. Well, that's stupid. It just makes taking unauthorized photos a misdemeanor. That's all. You should also lose your job immediately. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm hoping that at least the like. First responders are going to. Do we think that's actually going to happen? They're going to fire all eight. Doubt it. Well, fire them. No, they're not going to fire them. They should. They should all be fired. Everyone who took a picture of him should be fired. That's so sick. How can you do that? Well, they've probably done it before. That's why they did it. You know, like they probably do it before for oh whatever reason. God, I'm sure like if you are a first responder, you come across Especially things that you're just like, you know, and it's not necessarily all eight of them. were going to go sell it to tabloids. It could have just been keeping uh-huh. it for like a personal yeah. thing. Obviously, obvi- yeah, I'm just saying yeah, that yeah. like it's not totally That's unusual for so first responders to take pictures of scenes because for whatever reason. You so know, now you're not allowed to do that at all. Take any pictures from the scene. Unauthor- yeah. Unauthorized. If you get permission. Yeah. But if it's just sneaking it out and like snapping pictures, I just for always assume that that was phone. already a thing that if you were at a crime scene or a death scene that you aren't taking pictures that only the people that are taking pictures are investigators with actual cameras, but people are just bringing their phones out. That's well, just on people's camera rolls. Think about how many crimes are publicized. You see yeah. things all the time. People are filming everything. That's There's no true. way to stop it. I mean, everyone has a camera, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially something that's happening live, yeah. which is good in a lot of situations because it creates accountability. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't and know. this law is only wild. in California. So that doesn't, the rest of the country doesn't may not have something like this in place. Wow. So it's just California because all the celebrities, maybe, I don't know. You, I don't know the reasoning for it. Honestly, I think that it's should a just be weak. part of your job yeah. that you sign up for any type of public job like that, where you're dealing with people in intimate moments, such as their death that you don't take pictures of it. I thought that's just common sense, but apparently not. Apparently nope. some people are fucking idiots. What people will do for for a quick buck. (sighs) Sorry, it makes me really heated. I just, I feel so bad for that family. Poor Vanessa has been through so much. This poor woman. And she's dealing with her mom who's been a piece of shit. And just, oh, I could go on and on. I just feel really bad for them. And I can't believe they have to deal with crap like that. And eight of them, really? That's just pathetic. Yeah, it really is. But let's go ahead and jump into today's case. I can calm down a little bit. The Black Dahlia. This time stuff calms me down now. Yeah, God. Jeez, what world are we living? Where we are now. So Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924, and she was one of five daughters to her parents, Cleo and Phoebe Short. 
At the time, the family lived in Boston in a suburb, and a few years later, they moved to Portland and eventually settled in Medford, which is a small town just minutes north from downtown Boston. Medford is also a pretty small town and a very idyllic place to raise five kids. Cleo built miniature golf courses for a living, and he actually lost a lot of his money in the stock market crash of 1929. As did a lot of people. Yeah. It was was, a depressing time, you could say, right? It was a very depressing time. On October 15th, 1930, Cleo actually disappeared. This was pretty crazy. Yeah. His car was found abandoned in a nearby parking lot, and the police suspected foul play. Phoebe went to her local paper, pleading with the public to help try to find her husband. She thought it was so unlike him, but nothing was found. It was assumed that he had committed suicide by jumping into the Charles River. So as you can imagine, this was pretty hard for Elizabeth Short. Yeah, for that whole family. My God, like, Mm -hmm. you you lose everything with with the stock market crash and everything. And then all of a sudden your husband and Mm -hmm. their father just disappears and they assume that committed suicide i mean and they didn't really know yeah Yeah. and that's the worst thing possible when you don't know what happened so that was really hard for her her mother phoebe moved with her kids to a small apartment just blocks away from their elementary school and she raised five children on her own and this was very difficult she supported them by working as a bookkeeper so things were pretty tough can you imagine five kids on a bookkeeper salary single mom yeah that's really tough it's hard man Growing up, Elizabeth had a history of serious medical problems. She suffered from childhood tuberculosis, which most kids do not survive that. So she was lucky. Um, Also asthma and respiratory problems. She even had an operation at one point to drain fluid from her right lung. God, that does not sound fun at all. No, especially all three of those together. Like, imagine how sick you would be. A lot of lung issues. I mean, I have mild asthma and... I can only imagine if I had full-blown asthma plus tuberculosis. Especially back then. Yeah. When she entered junior high school, she started struggling in school a lot. She actually missed 53 days of school for unexplained reasons, probably because of her health, I'm sure, but maybe she was ditching. I don't know. She bounced back in eighth grade, and she was more focused this time, and her grades really improved. Even when Elizabeth worked very hard in school, she still struggled, though, to maintain a C average. Nevertheless, she was popular and well-liked. She was especially attractive, and she was nice to everyone, so she had quite a bit of friends and was well-known. When she started high school in 1939, that was just around the time that World War II began, and many young men that she knew were joining the service, and she started dreaming of a future husband, a strong military man. That World War II time period is such a crazy time period to really look back on, especially now, because can you imagine if like half of our population just left? No, I can't. And I wouldn't let you go. Or I, I said left, that a million times. Like, Bye. If someone tried to draft you, I would hide you in the studio. They'd have to drag you <laughs> out of here. It's illegal. They would throw me you. in prison. I don't care. We'll go to jail together. Oh my God. They wouldn't put us in jail. I would together. never let him go to war. You would want John to go to war? No, I would have wanted him to go to war, but I wouldn't want to go to prison with him instead. What the hell? <laughs> I'd rather go to prison. I'd live in a cardboard uh, box if it meant I got to be with this guy. Oh, you're so <laughs> nice to me. Elizabeth became even more beautiful as she got older. She was actually thought of to be one of the most attractive young women in their town. By her sophomore year, she had dropped out of high school. She stayed in Medford for about a year before moving to Miami Beach, which was a much warmer climate, and she believed that that would help her asthma. Yeah, it would. A warmer climate helps in general. It does. I always feel so much better in places that are warm. I think it's better for the body. I think it is, too. Because you get a lot more I have so many less of my symptoms when I'm traveling in a warm place. So she got a job as a waitress to make money and started hanging out in a lot of local hot spots, especially at like night 
bars and clubs. She loved the nightlife, man. I mean, Miami's got great nightlife. Oh, it does. South Beach, like Mm -hmm. have a good time there. On January 30th, 1943, she took a job at Camp Cook, an army World War II armored training camp in Santa Barbara County, California. And her supervisor thought that Elizabeth was one of the loveliest women that she had ever met. She was personable and hardworking and got along well with her cadets. She even won a beauty contest while she was there. Wow. At one point, she told her supervisor that she desperately needed a job to stay in California, a place that she now believed was best for her medical issues. It was rumored that Elizabeth had dated an Army Air Force sergeant who was jealous and abusive, and she was afraid of him and only stayed at Camp Cook for a short amount of time. Yeah, I don't think she had a lot of great relationships. No, she had her a life. She lot, had of a lot of men in her life. Yeah, which is really sad, honestly. Yeah. In late 1942, Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe, received a letter from her father, Cleo. We all thought Cleo was dead. Uh, yeah. Apparently not. Oh, what? <laughs> Cleo Short wrote her a letter to explain that he was alive and well in California and that he started a new life after losing all their money. What an asshole. He's like, hey, honey. Yeah. Sorry, I was gone for Just a little while. Fake your death, move to California. I'm sorry, I left you with five kids. Man, Cleo. Oh my God, I would track him down and murder him. So Cleo had left when Elizabeth was only six years old. So all of her, most of her childhood and her life, she didn't have her dad and then found out that he was alive. How would Imagine, you feel? Imagine like mourning him and dealing with that and then find out, no, he just left us. That, I would be that's so traumatic, pissed. man. Yeah, it's traumatic. Like how do you even deal with that or cope with that? No, I don't know. I would be ex- incredibly angry. It's going to make you hit the bars a little bit more, huh? Yeah, definitely. You know, drink away. So she thought it was only right that he, you know, help her out now that he had, you know, jumped ship and lost all their family's money. So she wrote him a letter asking for money and believing that this was all she wanted. He sent it to her. But Elizabeth used the money to travel to see him. And that was quite a surprise for Cleo. He wasn't pleased to find out that his estranged daughter was just showing up on his doorstep. But he decided to let her in and let her stay. And that was pending if she took care of the house and followed his rules. God, after all that, yeah. you think you would be like, of course, honey, yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, I did not this Cleo. No. Take care of the house. Cook clean for me. <laughs> yeah. Like, God, Cleo, man. So Elizabeth continued her lifestyle of hanging out at bars and nightclubs and spending time with men and staying out too late. And Cleo had a lot to say about this lifestyle. And eventually he decided to kick her out. Crazy. Savage, Imagine man. that after all that. In September 1943, she moved into a small apartment in Santa Barbara, and there she continued to hang out in the bars and spending a lot of time with soldiers. She wanted to find that military man. She was determined. On September 23rd, she was taken into police custody while in a restaurant with a drunk serviceman. She wasn't drinking, but she told conflicting stories about her age and was taken in anyway. And there's these pictures of her from that booking, and honestly, she looks gorgeous she looks like she could be a model striking this could almost be like a mark jacobs ad striking face i'll give her that for sure really strong cheekbones she's beautiful the police ended up sending her back east and told her to go home to medford can you imagine the police being like you need to go back to where you came from (laughs) yeah get out of california so she did go back for a little bit but she didn't stay long and eventually she moved back to florida where she met major matthew gordon jr and major matthew gordon jr and her hit it off right away and they quickly became an item. But he was soon shipped overseas because this is wartime. And while he was away, Elizabeth wrote to him constantly. Once she even sent him 27 letters in just 11 days. In the spring of 1945, 
Matthew was in a plane crash in India and survived. According to Elizabeth, while he was recovering, he wrote to her and asked her to marry him. She accepted and anxiously awaited his return. But on August 10th, 1945, he was in another plane crash. And this time he wasn't so lucky. He ended up dying just a few weeks before the war ended. That's tragic, man. Yeah. Like she finally finds love and then her love dies tragically after two plane crashes. What are the chances? In early 1946, Elizabeth decided to move back home to Medford and she worked as a cashier at a local movie theater in order to save up some money. On April 17th, she then moved to Hollywood where she continued to dream about marrying a military man and she wanted to have a family one day. But her lifestyle made it likely that she wasn't going to be settling down anytime soon. Elizabeth was very sweet and naive and rarely drank alcohol. While she often spent time with men, she didn't go home with them, which I feel like is a misconception about her a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she definitely has been like slut shamed over the years. Even when we went on this tour in Los Angeles, I felt like the tour guide was a little disrespectful like she was trying to be funny and i get that there's like this whole humor around it but yeah she was very almost victim blaming her that it was her fault she was in all these situations and yeah odd for sure but when she first moved to hollywood she had absolutely no money and stayed in a small hotel room by the summer she had moved south to long beach california and for a few weeks she stayed at the washington hotel which is a few blocks away from a local drugstore that was a popular hangout spot And Elizabeth would go to the store quite often in order to hang out with the servicemen that hung out there. And Elizabeth was a stunning, a natural beauty. She had curly black hair and a movie star smile, and she was known for dressing all in black. Also that same year, the movie The Blue Dahlia had come out. It was a murder mystery film starring Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. So they say that this is how she got her name. A dahlia is a type of flower. It is. When we went to that party that was themed around this case, they had black dahlias all over the place, fake ones, of course. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess her friends were just calling her this because it was so popular that they started to call her the black dahlia because she dressed in black all the time. And this show was so big that that just kind of became her nickname. So she had that name before she was murdered. Right. Which is another misconception people have. Yep. What's also interesting, though, is that during this time, Elizabeth may have also spent time in the local lesbian community, although this is just more of a rumor than a, than a fact, but it is something that people do contemplate. It has really nothing to do with this case, though. No. Between May and October of 1946, Elizabeth stayed in the home of Mark Hansen, a nightclub and theater owner. She shared a room with his girlfriend, Ann Toth. Kind of a sad-looking guy. Yeah. He's a little sad looking. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he looks a little constipated. Yeah. <laughs> His pants are up really high. But Mark often rented out rooms to aspiring young actresses. Elizabeth wanted to get her foot in the door and find some work in Hollywood. So before Elizabeth left, he gave her an address book as a gift. The front cover said Mark M. Hansen, 1937, and it came to be known as her little black book. And before he gave it to Elizabeth, Mark actually had the book for nine years. And inside were 75 names and numbers for well-known people in Hollywood. And for a few weeks in November and December of 1946, she lived in an apartment on the top floor of a building with seven other women. These women viewed Elizabeth as sort of a fish out of water in the city. She seemed to have a childlike innocence to her, especially when dealing with men. They always wanted more than what she was willing to give. 
On December 5th, she left Hollywood and told her roommates she was traveling north to Berkeley to visit her mother, but she really went south to San Diego. Once again, she was in a new city with no money and no place to live. She was befriended by a woman who worked as a theater usher named Dorothy French, and Dorothy invited Elizabeth to come stay with her and her mother. While living with Dorothy and her mom, Elizabeth didn't really talk about her past. All she said was that she used to work as a hat model and that she was a widow, claiming that her husband had been Matthew Gordon Jr., There was a diner across the street from where they lived that Elizabeth went to a lot, and people who knew her there described her as being moody and irritable, and they assumed it was because she was having trouble finding work. But people who were closer to Elizabeth believed something much more serious was going on. They felt like she was struggling with something deeply troubling and emotional, something that she couldn't or wouldn't talk about to anyone. About a week before Christmas in 1946, Elizabeth met a man named Robert Manley, and he went by Red because of his hair color. Red had been discharged from the service for psychological reasons, and at this time he had been married it to his wife Harriet for just over a year. The couple was going through what he called an adjustment period after their son's birth. On January 8, 1947, Red picked Elizabeth up from Dorothy's home for a fun night on the town. He told Elizabeth he couldn't return to Los Angeles until the next day, and suggested that for the sake of convenience they get a hotel room together, sleeping separately, of course, and Elizabeth agreed. They had dinner and went dancing, and while she usually didn't drink, Elizabeth had several drinks that night. Apparently, they did kiss, but by the time they got back to the hotel, she felt very sick, likely from drinking when she doesn't normally drink, and nothing else happened. The next morning, on January 9th, Red left the room briefly to make some calls. When he returned, Elizabeth was up and feeling much better, They ended up leaving around 12.20 p.m. and headed to Los Angeles. They then stopped at Union Station in downtown L.A., and Elizabeth checked in two suitcases, leaving her with no clothes, makeup, or any belongings besides what she had in her purse. Then they went to the glamorous Biltmore Hotel a few blocks away. We did go in there. I used the bathroom there. I did, too. They had nice bathrooms there. They did have nice bathrooms there. It's a haunted hotel, too. It's actually, some people claim it's one of the most haunted hotels in L.A., actually. It felt pretty creepy in there. Oh, yeah. I remember I was taking pictures of, like, creepy frames on the wall to see if, you know, with the flash, right, that yeah, any yeah. ghosts Sometimes would show up. Catch an apparition. We were on a haunted Hey, that tour, does happen. So. That does happen. I thought I caught something, too, at the Stanley. Remember I don't that? think you did. I think I took about a thousand pictures there and didn't catch <laughs> shit. <laughs> But they also say at the Biltmore that the ghost of Elizabeth Short is often seen on the 10th and 11th floors, as well as in the lobby occasionally, Mm -hmm. that there'll be an apparition that people believe is Elizabeth running through the halls. But once Elizabeth and Red were at the hotel, she told Red that she was meeting her sister, a short blonde woman. In reality, her sister was a brunette, and she asked Red to check at the front desk to see if her sister had arrived, but she hadn't, so they waited. He ended up waiting with her in the lobby until about 6.30 p.m., and then he left, and she continued to wait and periodically checking in with the front desk to see, you know, has she arrived yet, but then ended up leaving around 10 p.m. and walked south. Over the next week, several people claimed they saw or interacted with Elizabeth or a woman who matched her descriptions. There were a total of 12 witnesses, including six people who knew her personally. On January 11th, she was seen at a local lounge with two other women. Elizabeth appeared to be withdrawn and possibly drugged even, which is very Mm -hmm. interesting. She was wearing a wrinkled black dress and her nylon stockings were torn. Mm. A clerk at a market actually uh, changed some money for her so that she could use a payphone on January 12th. And the next day on January 13th, she was seen at a diner she went to from time to time. 
And then at noon on January 14th, she went back to Union Station and asked that the bag she had checked be forwarded to Alaska. What the hell? What's going on with that? And then the clerk asked for her name and she answered Elizabeth Short. That evening, a woman matching her description ran up to a woman police officer begging for help. The woman was hysterical and said she needed protection from her boyfriend who was in the military. He was wild with jealousy and threatened to kill her. The officer walked her back to the bar she had just run from and left her there. The last positively confirmed interaction with Elizabeth was with the Biltmore Hotel's front desk clerk on January 9th. On the morning of January 15th, 1947, it was exceptionally cold. Betty Bursinger bundled up her three-year-old daughter, Anne, and put on her own coat as well and lifted Anne into her stroller. Betty then headed out to the local shoe repair shop on foot. This was about 10 a.m. They lived about five miles south of Hollywood. Betty and Anne were going south towards Lamert Park. This area was sparse. There was a lot of vacant lots and open spaces. Now there's houses there. We've seen this area. Yep. We drove down this way mm-hmm. and it was open field at the time, but yeah. yeah. As she walked, Anne started squirming in her stroller, pointing to an object nearby. And that's when Betty saw what looked to be a broken department store mannequin lying in the grass just inches from the sidewalk. And it she really did look like a mannequin. It's crazy. Betty thought that this mannequin could possibly scare kids as they were walking home from school, so she decided to call the police. And after knocking on a few doors, someone answered and allowed her to call. But as she looked closer, she realized that this was not a mannequin at all. When the police finally arrived, they were horrified by what they found. Lying in the grass was the naked, bisected body of a young woman. But there was no blood on the ground, and the body had been basically drained of all the blood. Oh, God. Both happen. Yeah, it's. I hate hearing about cases where they drain all the blood because it reminds me of that Dexter episode. If you've seen Dexter, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. God. Both halves of the body had been scrubbed clean, so much so that the brush bristles were still embedded in her skin. The internal organs hadn't been damaged, and the intestines were tucked underneath the woman's body. And her pose was clearly deliberate. Her hands were over her head, with her elbows bent, and her legs were spread apart. There were bruises on her breasts and thighs and a huge chunk of skin was removed from her upper left thigh. And it's discovered later that this was to remove a rose tattoo in an attempt to conceal her identity. The bottom half of her body was positioned about a foot away from her top half. Her hair had recently been dyed a brownish red color and her black roots were just growing out. She had rope and wire burns around her wrists, ankles, neck, and upper right thigh. And it was clear that she had been tied up and tortured. And obviously, since there was a lack of blood at the scene, this meant that she was probably murdered somewhere else, and then her body was brought to this location. And like you said, clearly set up specifically to look odd or for someone to come across it. They definitely were not trying to hide her. No. She's like out in the open. Yeah. And it didn't take long for police to realize that this was a homicide. This was not a mannequin that they had found. This was a body. So at that point, they called in the homicide detectives. Reporters started to arrive almost immediately. They had their own radios and heard the report of the crime right away. One of the first reporters on the scene was a Los Angeles Herald Express reporter named Aggie Underwood. As a woman in journalism, Aggie was a pioneer in the field and covered many high-profile cases before. She took several pictures of the gruesome scene before detectives even arrived. I think that's why we do have so many photos of this because of Aggie. She was there on scene right away before police even got there. Or the detectives got there, rather. Even the most seasoned detectives were disgusted by that scene. A murder this sadistic was super unsettling to them. 
and uncommon at yeah. that time. Yeah. They dubbed the victim a Jane Doe because she, you know, you definitely couldn't identify her. And her face was all cut up and split in half. I mean, just terrible condition. And they used her fingerprints to identify her later on as Elizabeth Short. So now the big question is why? Who wanted to kill Elizabeth and who did it? At the time of Elizabeth's death, she was 22 years old. And sadly, she likely spent at least two to three hours being mercilessly tortured, sexually assaulted, and mutilated before she was killed. That scares me so bad. I hate thinking about what people go through right before they're murdered it's in those horrifying. situations. It really is. Oh my God. And many of her injuries were inflicted post-mortem. So whoever did this to her, after they killed her, they continued to, to destroy her body. It's mm-hmm. just sick. And the way her body was cut, though, was described as a perfect bisection. There's only one way to divide a body without going through any bone. And that's by going through the second and third lumbar vertebrae. This is a medical procedure known as hemicorporectomy. And this procedure takes time, a minimum of an hour and a half to complete, and can only be done by a skilled surgeon. And at the very least, the murderer would have had to have some sort of medical training, whether they were an actual surgeon or not. Wait, why would you ever be trained surgically to cut a body in half? Like, when would you ever need to do that? I'm confused. <laughs> when they do body transplants. I don't know. That's weird. Like transplants. Like why did they, why would he No, I think they're saying anyway? if you just know how to do like a, a bisection of the body, not, not always cutting all the way through. Well, I guess but you'd if you learn knew, that if right. you would, you know, cut up bodies in medical school. Yeah. And if you know the anatomy, you would Ugh, know where. I hate even talking about this. this is making me Well, think about up. it too. They probably tell you about that in medical school. So you don't accidentally cut somebody in half, you know, like they tell you where those sections are of your body where you, you know you don't cut too deep because you go right through them. Ew. Oh, okay. Also, detectives believe she had been killed somewhere with running water, such as in a bathtub, because she had no blood, so they would have needed to be somewhere where they could actually drain the blood. But, I mean, you can Ew. just drain it outside somewhere. But... I mean, mm, this is unlikely. the city, so it's, you know, yeah. there's not really a lot of places where they somebody could do that. So Probably it had to be somewhere inside. Yeah. yeah. But the most brutal, vicious torture was a massive gash across her face. While she was still alive, the murderer <sighs> sliced open her face from ear to ear, creating a distorted, bloody grin. Ugh. And this is sometimes referred to as a Glasgow smile Ew. or a Chelsea grin, as I've, I've heard it before as well a form of assault originating in Scotland in the 1920s or 1930s. And yeah, it's uh, very gruesome. It's like the Joker. Yeah, but it's cut ear to ear all the way up to your oh, earlobe. I hate that. Yeah. So based off the injuries to Elizabeth Short, the detectives were looking for someone in medicine, particularly a surgeon or someone who had attended some medical school. Because this wasn't the work of a novice you know, killer, somebody who's never killed before, or even a butcher. This was somebody who was highly skilled, vicious, and an extremely dangerous killer. So in a frenzy, they started searching the area for clues. And they found tire tracks at the scene, a heel print within the tracks, and a cement sack that appeared to have watery blood stains on it. In the days following the murder, the witnesses who claimed to have seen or interacted with Elizabeth between January 9th and January 14th started to come forward. And police worked to try to piece together a timeline and a motive. One witness said that he saw a car pull up to a vacant lot where she was found just before dawn on January 15th. He hadn't been sure of what was going on at the time, but now he believes that he may have seen the killer dump the body. 
The man who parked the car seemed to be positioning something on the ground for about four to five minutes, and then he drove away. Hmm, that, I mean, that's yeah. definitely could have been something for sure. Mm-hmm. The case exploded in the media. It made front page headlines in all six major Los Angeles newspapers, and it was also the most covered story for at least 30 to 40 days. Which I believe it, honestly. Yeah. I mean, yep. this was horrifying. Even my grandma knew about this case yeah. from the time. And it seems like they put some of those graphic pictures in there too, which obviously shocked people. You know, if you saw her face and stuff like Mm -hmm. this would definitely catch people's attention. I feel like. Yeah. Because there was a violent killer on the loose and the media, the police and people in the city were all afraid of what could happen next. This was a major priority for police. At first, the press said Elizabeth was a victim of the werewolf killer. Then a reporter called the local drugstore where Elizabeth hung out and got her nickname. From then on, this was referred to as the case of the Black Dahlia. So it's a combination of things. It's the nickname primarily of what the people who she hung out with uh, at the store would call her. And the police blamed the media for lack of progress in the case. They accused reporters of trampling through the crime scene, possibly destroying evidence, and withholding information when people called newspapers to report tips and potential leads. Which I I get to some extent that that's going to happen. Yeah. And reporters were so involved in this case and were at the police station so much that eventually they started just answering phone calls at the police station. Some of these calls could have been tips that were not passed on to the police. It didn't take long for Red Manley, who was the last verified man to have seen Elizabeth alive, to be taken into custody. He was found at a friend's house. His car was impounded as evidence, and the police found no trace of blood or any other evidence in his vehicle. After several days of interrogations and repetitive questioning, and lie detector tests, Red was released. They didn't think he did it. Seven years later, his wife found him writing cryptic notes to himself. He was hearing strange noises from what he referred to as a guilt complex, and she ended up committing him into an asylum. But when he was questioned by police again, they were still convinced that he had nothing to do with the murder. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I don't. I think they probably should have, you know, went down that road a little bit more than they did. I feel like. What was the guilt about? Yeah, exactly. So bad that it I mean, like, destroyed him. Yeah, where he goes insane. Yeah, I don't know. There's something there. But after the autopsy of Elizabeth, the two halves of her body were placed back together and embalmed for her burial. The next day, the coroner revealed her cause of death at a 45-minute uh, interview, basically. And the official cause of death was concussion to the brain after several sharp blows with a blunt instrument and shock and hemorrhage from the gruesome facial laceration. Oh, that's horrible. Elizabeth's father, Cleo, did not attend the inquest. He told authorities he hadn't seen his daughter since 1943 and wanted nothing to do with the investigation or with his former family. Dude, what a savage. Yeah, Cleo. After all that, doesn't give a fuck. No, not at all. Selfish. That same week, a tip was called in that a black shoe and purse that belonged to Elizabeth had been found in a trash can. And by the time the police arrived, the trash had, of course, been emptied and taken to the dump. But the witness who called it in was able to locate the items, actually. And this discovery showed the police that the direction the killer was likely going after dumping Elizabeth's body. The murderer traveled north away from the vacant lot, dropped off the shoe and purse, and continued on to the place where Elizabeth was murdered. As you can imagine with a case that was so high profile and sensationalized in the press, there was a lot of false confessions that were made that obviously just distract from the investigation itself. And it's possible that as many as 500 people falsely confessed to the murder of Elizabeth short. 
at least 50 false confessions have been verified. These came from all types of people, including men, women, soldiers, housewives, clergy members, local drunks, and even young pranksters. Some of them weren't even born at the time of the murder, but they're still like, just, oh yeah, I did it. Like, I don't understand why people do false confessions. I just don't. It's the weirdest thing. I'll never understand it. But shortly after Elizabeth's body was discovered, the examiner editor, James Richardson, received a phone call from someone claiming to be the killer. It was a man's voice, but it was soft. He knew details about how the body had been mutilated that only the killer would know. James said the caller seemed proud that he had so far eluded the police. The killer told James that he had Elizabeth's belongings and planned to mail them to the paper. A few days later, on January 24th, a postal worker found a suspicious envelope that smelled like gasoline, and it was addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. The letters had been cut out of newspaper headlines, so it was kind of like, you know, where you make a cute collage sometimes and it's just one letter from each headline so that it, you can't track a, you know, handwriting at all. And it made a message that said, here is Dahlia's belongings letter to follow. The envelope contained everything that had been in her purse, including her birth certificate, her ID, and that little black book, that little address book from Mark Hansen. So they know that that letter definitely came from her killer And because it was covered in gasoline, it was likely that her killer had planned to burn it, but changed his mind and mailed it instead. The gas dissolved the oily residue that the fingerprints would have left behind. That's really probably why I doubt he was going to burn it. So if you think about that, clearly whoever did this and who was also likely the killer was very intelligent to know these things. Really smart. I mean, how many people know that gas dissolves Mm -hmm. oily residue from fingerprints? I mean, I don't think your average person knows that even. The police thought the address book was the best lead that they had gotten so far. I mean, it's filled with a bunch of names, right. potentially men that she had been spending time with. The police deemed Mark a suspect and brought him in for questioning. They talked to him and Ann Toth, who had been Elizabeth's roommate at the time where she stayed at Mark's house. They had also spoke to many of the people that were listed in the address book, and all of them, including Mark Hansen, were cleared. I don't know how you really clear all of them, but yeah. I mean, cleared as much as they could be. The newspaper started receiving anonymous letters from the murderer, and they all were in that disguised cutout letter style. And letters kept coming in every few days or weeks. The police were able to lift some fingerprints from the letters and did send them to the FBI. And in a letter received on January 29th, the sender said that he had planned to turn himself in. It read, here it is, turning in, Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. Black Dahlia Avenger. Why do I think that this is just bullshit? Like this isn't the actual killer. Like, well, the first one could have been, but yeah, I guess there's no way to determine that all of them, unless they, whoever did it was literally playing a game and they thought Mm -hmm. this was all funny. And like, I'm going to be the black Dahlia Avenger. Mm -hmm. This letter was different though, because it was written out, which gave the police hope that the killer would really turn himself in. But soon after this, they received another letter that said he changed his mind He was not going to turn himself in. This letter taunted the police saying, catch me if you can. And as a tactic to lure him out, the newspaper printed a story about a confession. They hoped that this would kind of make the killer jealous of the attention that the other fake killer would get and come out to take credit for the murder. Instead of proving that he was the killer by confessing, he proved it by killing again. Three weeks after Elizabeth was killed, a woman named Jean French was found murdered in her home by a construction worker. She had been savagely beaten with a crowbar or a tire iron, and her cause of death was a punctured lung from her own rib cage. 
Jean had dark hair, just like Elizabeth, but she was a little older in her forties. And just like the black Dahlia, she was found nude and kind of arranged. And there was a message written on the wall in bright red lipstick that said, fuck you BD below that. The killer had written texts. Jean's murder was never solved. I don't know. I, I don't know if I, there's any connection there. I don't think they ever found any connection. Yeah, probably I mean, just because just, there's a lot of copycat killers out there that try to, you know, mimic other killings that happen. That's what it kind of seems like to me. So they ended up calling that case, the red lipstick murderer mm-hmm. still unsolved. Yeah. And at this time, the word serial killer didn't exist. The police used the term chain killer. And at this point they believe that they may have a chain killer on their hands. And they worried that this killer would strike again. And because there was really no evidence to directly link this murder to Elizabeth's, uh, basically the connection was pretty much forgotten and it was never really reassociated with Elizabeth's murder. Between 1943 and 1949, at least nine women were murdered, including Elizabeth, in an eight-mile radius in Los Angeles. Up to 20 murders could be connected, and this tight perimeter means that the killer likely lived nearby. Also, six of these victims had notes attached to the crimes in one way or another, and all the handwriting was the same printing used in the letter from the Black Dahlia murderer that said he planned to turn himself in. And as time went on, women kept turning up dead, and the case wasn't being solved. There had been so many detectives on these cases that it started to seem suspicious that none of them could be solved. It's possible two killers were operating in the area simultaneously or that a select few of these murders were copycat killers or people trying to pin a murder on the chain killer. So with that being said, it's possible that most of them, if not all of them, were connected. I mean, in an eight mile radius, yeah, I think it's pretty unlikely that it's a bunch of different killers just all mimicking each other, that it's one killer if there's all these you know, similarities and it was clear that this murder liked the attention that they were getting and, you know, by doing these gruesome scenes and having the letters and everything. So it was likely that they would keep on killing in 1949. The grand jury investigated the case and evidence of police corruption and cover-ups within the LAPD. 21 jurors concluded that Leslie Dillon, a local bellhop was a primary suspect. There was widespread police corruption during this time at all levels, misconduct and jealousies that caused vital case information to be lost or not passed on properly. And because of this, a major shakeup within the LAPD happened, including the dismissal of the police chief. Because if you look back at history, the LAPD does not have a very good one. That's for sure. No, it's historically very corrupt. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't very surprising at the time. The Black Dahlia case was then taken away from the LAPD and handed over to the district attorney's office. And this was very, very unusual and rarely happened. But so many of the police were compromised at this point and involved with the mob that it seemed like the only choice that they had left. Because I don't think a lot of people know this, but uh, the DAs have their own investigators as well. And then the investigation was taken over by Lieutenant Frank Jemison, chief investigator for the Bureau of Investigation for the DA which is an entirely separate agency from the LAPD. So maybe they'd actually get somewhere. And even though the DA's office took over and investigating Elizabeth's case, the LAPD still sent officers to help work with the DA on the case. And to this day, a lot of the physical evidence from this case has never been tested for DNA, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, that is. And I think it's because they've lost it straight up. Just so much of this is gone for good. So let's talk about some of the theories of what could have happened or who did this elizabeth's murder may have been connected to the murder of suzanne degnan 
In January of 1946, six-year-old Suzanne was kidnapped and portions of her dismembered body were found in a sewer. And that summer, William Herons was arrested for burglary in her neighborhood. And during the interrogation, he confessed to the murder. The LAPD captain, Jack Donahue, believed that these cases could have been linked and could have been committed by the same killer. But by the time Elizabeth was killed, William Herons was already in jail. So if they were murdered by the same person, the wrong man could have been convicted of Suzanne's murder. And in both cases, the bodies were dismembered and drained of blood, which is kind of unique, especially for back then. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest connections for why they thought perhaps this was connected because the drained blood. It's just so weird. Yeah, it's not that often that you see that. And in order to do that, I mean, you got to have some skill to do that, I feel like. Captain Jack Donahue also theorized that Elizabeth was murdered by a woman. This was because the wounds on her body were similar to those performed by women in other cases. The LAPD commissioned a criminal profile from a psychologist named Alice LaVere. She suggested that the killer could have been a jealous and lonely female with emotional issues. Uh, I find that kind of unlikely. Why? Well, I, I think it would be very difficult for especially one woman to do all this, you know, and even one man for that matter. Kind of hard physically, to carry her body. Physically is what yeah. I'm saying. Cause dead weight is very heavy weight. But not impossible. Some women are, you know, yeah, she could have been, been really strong. She could have been absolutely. It's also possible that Elizabeth was killed by the Cleveland torso killer. At least 12 people were killed between 1934 and 1938 in Cleveland. The bodies were dismembered and spread throughout the city. And the way that they were surgically cut resembled how Elizabeth was cut. I guess it is possible that she could have been killed by, you know, a serial killer from Cleveland. I mean, mm-hmm. 1934 to 1938, she was found in 1947. So yeah, that's still a long amount of time. So I don't know if it, it's possible. Yes, but I don't think there's, it's unlikely mm. that it was the Cleveland torso killer, you yeah, know, coming way out of. It's possible. I mean, why not go to LA? LA has a ton of tourists and, you know, a lot going on. I feel like someone could come there to do something like that. Yeah. It's possible. Just seems like they were really trying to, you know, make connections yeah. based on her injuries, you know, and they were like, Oh, it could have been that. Cause I guess it was that uncommon. So they had to look far and wide, I guess. Elizabeth's murderer also could have killed Georgette Bardorf. She was found dead in her bathtub in 1944, about two and a half years before Elizabeth was found. And Georgette, Georgette was violently attacked and raped because Elizabeth's body was, it did have signs of sexual assault. So Mm -hmm. it was very possible. And a man named Jack Anderson Wilson is a possible suspect. He is also known as Al Morrison or Arnold Smith. Those are random names. Jack was a career criminal and a sex offender and also an alcoholic as Arnold Smith, he was interviewed by author John Gilmore for his book, Severed, The True Story of the Black Dahlia Murder. And during the interview, he said that Al Morrison murdered Elizabeth, and he even provided details about the case. He also claimed that Al Morrison killed Georgette Bardorf. And a psychic named Marie St. Clair claimed that she made a connection with Elizabeth, who told her that she was murdered by a person named Morrison. A stronger potential suspect is Leslie Dillon, a bellhop who was determined to have been the primary person of interest by the grand jury in 1949. Leslie was also a writer and a mortician's assistant, and he knew a suspicious number of details about the case, and the police brought him in for questioning, but nothing came out of it, and it was rumored that a police officer even let him go to keep him quiet. 
Yeah, there's a lot of belief that there is police cover up in this case for sure, which was not uncommon at the time for especially the LAPD. Officers on the case and on the department's gangster squad suspected that Leslie was the murderer or at least was an accomplice. Because Leslie had been detained illegally and since there was very little concrete evidence, a murder charge was never pursued. There was also a writer that claimed anonymous sources revealed that the letters D and E, which were carved into Elizabeth Short's pubic area, and they believe that this D stood for Leslie Dillon, perhaps, and maybe the E stood for whoever else was involved. Maybe Elizabeth. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah, maybe. There's a lot of other theories out there as well, but one of the most prominent is the Hodel theory. So there is a former LAPD homicide detective named Steve Hodel, and he's actually the son of George Hodel, and he believes that his father was the killer of the Black Dahlia. Imagine thinking your dad was a killer and then working for LAPD. I wonder if there's a connection between that. Um, But he worked for them from 1963 to 1985. And in that time, he investigated over 300 murders. And after he retired, he became a private investigator. He started working for the defense, seeing cases from the opposite side and learning more about how corruption and negligence on the police force affected case outcomes. He realized that sometimes police officers bent the rules to get arrests or convictions. His father, George Hodel, was brilliant. He was a musical prodigy at age nine and had an IQ of 186, one point higher than Albert Einstein. Of course. Of course, he's smarter than Albert Einstein. He graduated high school at just 14 years old and attended Caltech. He had an affair with a professor's wife and was kicked out of school. And he eventually went on to have at least 11 children with several different women. He worked as a crime reporter covering homicides and earned his medical degree. And in med school, he was a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. Even as a student, he was such a skilled surgeon with really excellent hand-eye coordination. And even his professors wanted him to assist them in complicated surgeries. And he was a sexual deviant highly influenced by surrealism. He believed that there was no difference between the dream and the waking state. Yeah. And George had a surrealist artist friend named Man Ray and he was like his best friend and mentor. And they shared this love for deviant sex and the violent domination of women. And what's crazy about George Hodel is that he was basically like a gynecologist in a way. He opened up a private clinic for venereal disease and serviced many influential people. Very weird. I mean, for a gynecologist who's into deviant sex, like there's yeah, clearly a connection that's, there. That really it's freaks so creepy me out. and weird. Yeah. Makes me question my gynecologist. I know, right? Like, what if? Yeah. By the 1940s, he was known for having these wild parties in Hollywood with elites, and there were sex, drinking, drugs, everything. Probably you can worse, too, I'm yeah, sure. I'm sure a lot worse than that. And in 1945, George Hodel purchased the Soudan house where he moved in with his children and his ex-wife, Dorothy Huston Hodel. And this is the house that we got to visit. Yeah, this was a really yeah. cool house. Really cool house. There's footage of it on my YouTube channel or we'll insert it over yeah. here what we took while we were there. Um, but a lot of the house is this open area. It's got a huge courtyard in yeah. it. And the way that in the, the middle of it, the floor plan of it is very weird. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like a basically like a football field and all the rooms are around this courtyard area, this rectangle courtyard area that now has a pool in it. But at the time when George lived there, there was no pool, uh, but there's oh, really? all these rooms. Yeah. The pool is put in later. Oh yeah. It's nice. So what was that? 
was the ceiling, was there a ceiling back then? No, it was still open courtyard, but it was just oh. like a grassy area. area. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful home and it's very expensive, especially it's, nowadays. It's architecture is Mayan revival and it's like a built like a fortress. It really is. Janelle, will you look up what it last sold for? I'm really curious. Uh, it last sold for like 1.3. Oh, it, oh. Yeah. It wasn't oh. even that much. Hmm. It's not terrible. For it, I mean, Los it was Angeles. like a historic house. Are you sure? Yeah. It was back in the early 2010s like it was oh, it was still, still like 10 years ago or something but someone it, got a deal on that yeah it was only like 1.3 million or 1.7 million or something like that it has this really cool fountain in it too remember that yeah it's like a koi yeah. pond and yeah it has really secret cool. rooms too in it it's got like hidden rooms it's very mm-hmm. interesting architecture it was constructed in 1928 and located on franklin avenue in los Feliz, a neighborhood in los angeles california In the summer of 1949, George's beautiful teenage daughter, Tamar, ran away from the house. And when she was questioned by the police, she said that she had left because, quote, her home life was too depressing on account of all the, quote, sex parties at the Soudan or Franklin house. Tamar also then accused her father and other adults of raping her during a party at the house. And that's something I believe really did happen. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, Hollywood elites are in there. There's probably some crazy shit going on. Underage stuff happening there for sure. And when questioned by police, George responded bizarrely, stating that he had recently been delving into the mystery of love in the universe and that the acts of which he were accused were unclear, like a dream. I can't figure out whether someone is hypnotizing me, he said, or I am hypnotizing someone else. When police raided the home, they seized pornography and other very questionable objects. Three witnesses testified at the trial that they had seen George having sex with his daughter. George Heldell was later acquitted, though, of the sexual assault charges in December of 1949. And there's actually evidence that he paid off the DA's office uh, $15,000 in order to acquit him. So because of this molestation case with his daughter, the LAPD decided to include George Hodel in the suspect list for the Black Dahlia case. In October 1949, George's name was mentioned in a formal written report to the grand jury as one of five prime suspects in Elizabeth Short's murder but none of the named suspects were ever submitted to the grand jury for consideration for indictment as the investigation was still ongoing. And that's why I think that's why people really think there's some sketchiness corruption happening because why was this never, you know, this evidence brought to the grand jury. George was also interviewed as a suspect in the nearby June, 1949 murder of Louise Springer, the green twig murder. Though evidence to support this accusation was not publicly available until July 2018. So we literally just learned about this a few years ago that he could have been a primary suspect in another murder. The LAPD put George Hodel under surveillance from February 18, 1950 to March 27, 1950. They installed two microphones into his home, which were monitored by 18 different detectives. They wanted to see if George would make any comments to insinuate that he was involved in Elizabeth Short's murder. Most of the transcripts were described as dull at first, and that included George Hodel having sex. I guess that's dull. Um, berating his secretary and talking about money problems. However, on February 19th, 1950, there was something horrific in the recording. At 8.25 p.m., a woman screamed on the recording, and the police hadn't heard a woman before this, so that really freaked them out. Yeah, and then she screamed again. Mm -hmm. So something was happening to her. Yeah. Later that same day, Hodel was recorded talking to his confidant, and he said, realized there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. 
get a taxi expired 1259. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out, killed her. The surveillance routine continued, which caught a highly incriminating statement. He said, supposing I did kill the black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. So that's pretty incriminating. Yeah. Huh? Literally, he had sex with her, killed her. Yep. And then he says, maybe I did kill the black Dahlia, but mm-hmm. they can't prove it. Yeah. The secretary referred to in the transcript is Ruth Spaulding, who died from a drug overdose. Drug overdose. Yeah. Due to Hodel's comments in the recordings, he was investigated for her murder as well. George had been present when the secretary died and had burnt some of her belongings before the police were called, causing the Spalding case to be dropped due to the lack of evidence. It's like, come on. Mm-hmm. It's clear George is paying off people at the police yeah. department because really, after you know that, you don't bring him in. You don't suspect him even. But apparently the documents were later found indicating that Spalding had been planning to blackmail George Hodel. She was potentially about to come forward about George intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for laboratory tests, medical treatments, and unnecessary prescriptions. George's son, Steve, believes Elizabeth Short may have been one of these victimized patients of his. By April of 1950, Lieutenant Frank Jemison of the LADA's office had gathered enough evidence to charge George Hodel and was about to arrest him for Elizabeth Short's murder when George left the United States again. He obtained a degree in psychiatry and counseled prisoners in a territorial prison in Hawaii for three years and then moved on to the Philippines where he started a new family. So he literally up and left, left the house, left his family, kids, and took off to Hawaii and then to the Philippines Mm -hmm. where he remained until 1990 Wow! before finally returning to California where he finally died in 1999 in San Francisco without the charges ever being filed. So because like even if the charges were filed, they could have went after George and went and got him. But for whatever reason, after he took off, the, the charges just literally dropped. They weren't ever pressed against him. Lieutenant Frank Jemison of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office wrote the report to the grand jury dated February 20th, 1951. And in the report, he noted that Lillian Denorak, who had lived with George Hodel, identified Elizabeth Short as one of his girlfriends. She also said that George Hodel had spent some time around the Biltmore Hotel, where Elizabeth had been dropped off before she went missing. According to Tamar, her mother Dorothy had been told by George that he had been partying on the night of the murder and actually had said they'll never be able to prove I did that murder to her. That's that's pretty suspicious. Mm-hmm. His son Steve has also written that he believes George Hodel re-entered the United States multiple times each year from 1958 through 1988 and specifically in 1966 and 1969 to commit more murders before returning to the Philippines after. That's crazy if you think about it. I mean, he's literally saying my father was a serial killer. Yeah. And And if anyone knows it's him, right? Yeah. Yeah. It seems pretty obvious and it lines up. The timeline makes like perfectly. complete sense. Yeah. I mean, I believe that he was the one who did it. So George Hodel died on May 16th, 1999, and his current wife gave Steve a family photo album. And inside, he found semi-nude photos of a young, dark-haired woman, and he thought that they looked like the Black Dahlia. In 2003, Steve Hodel published a book on the Black Dahlia called Black Dahlia Avenger, A Genius for a Murder. In the book, he claims that his sadistic father murdered Elizabeth. 
and that he was also responsible for a number of unsolved brutal murders that had taken place in Los Angeles in the 1940s. And he believed that some of these murders had taken place in the Soudan house basement. Honestly, I could definitely see that in that house. That house is at night, especially be so creepy in there. Did we go in the basement? No, I, I know we went up and down stairs. No, there's, uh, there's an area that we definitely didn't go yeah, into. Yeah, there was definitely some blocked yeah. off areas. It was yeah. like a party that we were at. Yeah, we were just kind of on the main floor. There they was, tried to reenact a George Hodel party. They, and they had all these like creepy looking women dancing around in sexy outfits. And they tried to make it kind of look almost Illuminati. Yeah, it was a very like, like Illuminati-ish yeah. party for sure. Mass and everything. Everybody's, mm-hmm. it's very mysterious and stuff. It's So like we said, Steve thought that because his father had those two photos and he thought they looked like Elizabeth Short, that maybe it was her. However, the Short family insists that these photographs are not her. Steve later learned that one of the girls photographed was a former friend of his father. And the woman in the second photograph is still unidentified. So yeah, it could be Elizabeth, but I I don't know. From looking at it, I don't really see it. I don't think he was long enough to have, like with her long enough to have pictures of her. Yeah, yeah, especially if... He happened been at the Biltmore and this was like a opportunity crime that mm-hmm. he did. Later, he saw a newspaper clipping that ran the handwritten note from the murderer and he recognized his father's handwriting instantly. But this has never been confirmed. No, either. police say that there's not any connection there, but Steve insists there is. Then he learned that his father had been a suspect at one point and that there were police surveillance recordings of him. He loved his father and didn't want him to be guilty. But the more he learned about the case, the more he suspected George may have murdered Elizabeth Short. Yeah, because, I mean, he seems like the perfect suspect, really. I mean, he had yeah. a journalism background, so he could know how yeah. to fuck with the police that way through the media. He had definitely had the medical background, mm-hmm. the precision skills needed in order to commit the murder he and was, perform the bisection. Yeah, and he's just known for being a general creep. Yeah, he's a very, very, Tamara said he's just a dirty, nasty, yeah. disgusting man. Yeah. I mean, he was obsessed with violent sex and yeah. deviant art. And and yeah. then those recordings tell you a lot as well. Yeah. The incriminating I mean, state talking about, if not, was he joking around he straight up was like, I killed yeah. her, but no one will know because I can't talk to my secretary. Right. Uh, Steve also found out that his father had met Elizabeth at one of his Hollywood parties and he believed the two of them had an affair at some point. So that could be how he got pictures of her. If they met up at some point. Yeah, that's a good point. Steve Hodel also suspected his father was that Chicago lipstick killer from the late 1940s and the jigsaw murderer in Manila of 1967. So in the Philippines even. And even the San Francisco Zodiac killer of the late 1960s. That would be interesting. I wonder if that's possible. It could be. Huh? It absolutely could be. Yeah, I want to know people's thoughts. I mean, it's unknown where he really was or what he was doing for years and years and years. And, you know, you do a killing like that, you're probably a serial killer. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's very likely that he could be the Zodiac killer or any number of these other serial killers. In secret, Steve took his findings from his investigation to the active head deputy district attorney, Stephen Kay. After reviewing everything, Stephen Kay confirmed that if George was still alive, he would charge him with the Black Dahlia murder and the Red Lipstick murder. So when Steve went to the DA's offices and tried to get more evidence from the case or more information, a lot of it had disappeared. Surprise, surprise. And the LAPD had no explanation for why. They told him that this happened sometimes and that that was it. There's nothing we can do. It's gone. It's just, I don't know. I feel like there's so many cases that have cover-ups involved that just mm-hmm. 
where evidence and information just mysteriously disappears. Yep. You'd think they would keep really good track of stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently not. Cause yeah, they could have been trying to protect George Hodel or someone else within the department that was mm-hmm. somehow involved. Very possible. In 2013, Steve Hodel actually claimed that a cadaver dog had indicated that human remains had been or were present in the basement and behind the Soudan house. And they did actually pull soil from the alleyway behind the house and they did find human remains in that. So this is again, not in the house. They didn't find human remains, but they did find human remains in the soil behind the Soudan house. But as of fall 2015, there have been no excavations at the house. And I don't think there ever will be because there's nowhere to do it. You'd have to destroy the house to to dig up anything. And there's probably not nothing there at that point. Mm -hmm. This is really interesting though. And I don't know what, what you think about this, but years and years and years after George Hodel left the country, a transient woman appeared at the back door of the Soudan house and she had detailed recollections of George Hodel's all red kitchen and his all gold bedroom and seemed intimately familiar with the layout of the house. She just randomly showed up to whoever was living there years and years later. And again, it couldn't mean anything, but when the, you know, whoever answered the door, the owner of the house talked to this person. She said, this house is a place of evil. And she also knew like what it used to look like and all that. So maybe she was a victim at one point. And I don't know, just randomly came to their door. Mm -hmm. So the FBI has 211 public files concerning the Black Dahlia case, yet these files do not provide a review of the investigation. The Los Angeles Police Department have jurisdiction in the Elizabeth Short case, but the LAPD records have not been made public. If these records were made public, perhaps someone would be able to analyze the files and bring Elizabeth justice. Chances are if they have some stuff that we don't know about that would solve this thing. Yeah, absolutely. But for now we'll just have to theorize about what could have happened. I yeah. Know. I mean, there's still no like real concrete physical evidence as far as we know Mm-mm. that ties George Hodel to the murders, but it definitely seems like he's top of the list for suspects. I mean, yeah. there's just too many things that line up with mm-hmm. him and he seems like, you know, if you're going to look at a criminal profile for somebody, George Hodel definitely fits the profile of this murder for sure. Definitely. And had the skills to know how, how to complete such a, you know, horrific killing. Yeah. He fits the profile perfectly. I think there's accomplices with this as well that, you know, that Leslie Dillon guy, the bellhop or whatever, he was a mortician's assistant could have been involved. Cause I feel like just one person moving a body like that would have been difficult. But I guess if you cut them in two, I guess you could, could move somebody by themselves. Maybe he had like an assistant that knew about all the stuff that he was doing, you know, and just yeah. kept quiet and he paid him to keep quiet. Cause yeah. who else would he be talking to in that recording? Like, right. Oh, well if they want to know if I did it, they'll never know now that my secretary's dead. Who was he speaking to that would have known that it's not like he was just speaking into the air. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So someone knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Maybe he did have help. I feel like he did. I feel like there's somebody out there that knows something that just hasn't come forward. Yeah, I, I believe that's probably accurate. But let us know what you guys think. Do you think it was George Hodel? Do you think it was someone else? Let us know in the comments below. And yeah, we'll be back next week with another dark true crime case for you. Yes. So with that being said, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of the Mile Higher Podcast, our first of Crime Tober. 
If you did, be sure to like and subscribe. Follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd really appreciate it because, yeah, YouTube just doesn't count for podcasts yet. And yeah, we will see you guys next week. Stay safe. Stay woke.